This is CNN. Radio. You're about to meet the man who will make America care about two young assassins. I sometimes describe it as a coming-of-age tale wrapped within a teen assassin fable. A fable about two teenage hit girls. What are we going to do now? I'll think of something. So, you have these two young women, Violet and Daisy, who have created a reality of their own. And for money, they're part of an underworld organization where their assassins ranked numbers eight and nine. And they just finish this job where they show incredible skill. But they're also childlike. And one day, when they're, they're planning a vacation, but they discover that a dress designed by their favorite here, pop starlet is available. Barbie Sunday has a new fashion line. Be your best in my new signature dress. Let them know you mean business at the disco or in the boardroom with the amazing versatility of the premiere piece and my high-end line of super stylish couture. And this dress, they just have to have. Who's better than you, girl? Oh, man! How much is it? Around 300 bucks. And they take what they think is an easy job, and it turns their world completely upside down. We're not here to clean your bathtub or organize your closets or make you happy. We're here to kill you. And if you're a parent, Violet and Daisy may turn your world right side up. It's very much about the ties between parents and children, particularly fathers and daughters, and sort of explores that relationship when it's frayed and how it might be repaired. It can make one think about their relationship while there's still time. I never really talked to a job before. This might even be some kind of test. Everything's a test when you're a career woman. This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder, and we have with us the screenwriter, director, what else are you, Jeffrey Fletcher? Screenwriter, director, and? Uh, producer and dreamer. Well, the dreamer part is clear. If you all go out and see uh, Jeffrey Fletcher's new movie, Violet and Daisy, uh, and you can dream along with him. This is uh, this is a movie. When I heard the description, I thought I have no interest in seeing a story about uh, two teenage girls who are assassins. And I just finished screening the movie on my computer, and am completely emotionally drained. Um, why is that? How did you do that to me? Well, when we start with the premise of these teenage assassins. You know, the movie is really about other things. I mean, that's just a way in for a lot of people. But the film starts and ends in such starkly different places. And there's a lot of unusual things going on. But through it all, the the threads that, that keep it together are the higher themes involved. And they are friendship, love, and redemption. And it also makes commentary about celebrity fixation and uh, materialism and these young women are looking for something outside of themselves when they really should be looking inside and 
making meaningful connections with other people to get to their best selves. I've been thinking a lot about Father's Day coming up. I, I have three children. I know you have two siblings. Uh, I think this is, this is a movie that every parent, especially fathers, have to see in time for Father's Day. I was very moved as a father. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, that is one of the many unexpected uh, ideas uh, that the film explores. It's very much about the ties between parents and children, particularly fathers and daughters, and sort of explores that relationship when it's frayed and how it might be repaired and some of the regret involved. And perhaps it makes one, it can make one think about their relationship while there's still time. How many pages was this script when you sent this script around? Hmm. I believe it was roughly 107, if I'm recalling the draft that went around. So 107, to get anybody to read 107 pages is really something. When do you think people start to realize, oh, this is something so far beyond violence that and, and mm. has such deep meaning. When do, when do you think people start to get that and want to be a part of it? Well, I found that a lot of, a lot of young people, they seem to get on board really, really early. And others, if they're not on board by the first five minutes, I find that they usually come in around 15 minutes because, uh, as you pointed out, the uh, direction of this film, the unusual direction, and hopefully the humanity of the film becomes clear. And you're starting from one very specific premise and venturing elsewhere. So on the surface, you say, wow, this is about teenage hit girls. But, you know, I don't know how long you could sustain this heightened, detached, graphic novel-like reality that these women live in. And I think the story has to move somewhere else. And these characters have to begin to be in touch with their humanity. I sometimes describe it as a coming-of-age tale wrapped within a teen assassin fable. So you have these two young women, Violet and Daisy, who have created a reality of their own. And for money, uh, they're part of an underworld organization where their assassins ranked numbers eight and nine. And they just finish this job where they show incredible skill. But they're also childlike. They're both too young and too old for who they are. And one day, when they're, they're planning a vacation, but uh, one day they discover that a dress designed by their favorite pop starlet is available. And this dress, they just have to have. And they take what they think is an easy job, and it turns their world completely upside down. And, and they learn more about themselves, uh, they learn more about each other, and, and life by the time it ends. And, you know, and I, 
the film bends and blends several genres. Um, and I think, you know, something you touched upon earlier, Michael, I've found that some people fully process the film a day later. And I mean that in a good way because for me, uh, the films I love stay with me. And uh, it's such a rare experience. And what you just described of this film, I would imagine that is a, a sort of a neater description, a more organized description than what you <laughs> than what you began with. When did this whole film first occur to you? Over how many years? And how did it transform during the process? Take us through that first moment. When, what was it? You had to make a movie about what? Well, the kernel of this idea came right before I got the job for Precious. And I think it came from a few different places. I love the crime genre. I think it's one of the best in American film. I love coming-of-age stories. And I thought it would be interesting to combine those two following two young women. And with all of those elements put together, I thought it offered a, an enormous opportunity for entertainment value and humanity. So, so you, you started with the, the, the broader themes and the, the types of expression, but not necessarily with the kernel of the actual story that would drive it. Mm. Well, I, uh, I just had very broad strokes. So, uh, young women coming of age through the crime genre. And that was really it. But I found, when I really returned to the script, uh, after Precious, that very early on, these characters started speaking back to me. And as a writer, uh, that is such a thrill. Uh, to be swept up into this world you're trying to create, where elements of that world are uh, speaking to you. But to speak back to you, I guess they have to have done something. At, at, at what point, how did that process mm. work? And again, I hope we're not dancing around the specifics too much, but we know that these, mm. these girls are killers and they're killing mm -hmm. people. At what point, what, did they, what was the first thing they said to you? Well, I, at the time, and I was thinking a lot about uh, this culture of celebrity and how it wasn't as dominant when I was a teenager. And I was wondering you know, what kind of effect it would have on me, how it might have changed me. And it uh, dawned on me that if we're going to have two characters uh, moving towards their humanity, let's start them very far away from it, but in an organic way. I think a lot of young people are bombarded with imagery and other elements that foster this idea of celebrity worship and, oh, if I only had this object, if I could only get into this party, I, I would be more important. I would be more interesting. And... However 
fable-like. This story goes. It is grounded in you know very real aspects of our everyday world like that. So this idea of moving towards their humanity. So you've, you've had a journey yourself moving towards your humanity or at least fulfilling your aspirations. Give us, mm. give us the screenplay of your life a little bit. Tell us, tell us your screenplay, your life story. What's the first scene? Well, the first scene involves everything going really well. Um, uh, a loving family, a safe home, a small town, and uh, sports and school and art and home movies and pretty much all through up to grad school. Everything was flowing uh, fairly well, uh, aside from the death of my father, who, you know, had an enormous impact on my life. He taught me about photography and baseball and, and many, many other things. And every member of my family contributed enormously to who I am and what I know. But I found that in grad school, where my films got an enormous amount of attention, one even got a Hollywood deal. But all of that fell apart. And for over a decade after that, I struggled to try to get into the film industry. And year after year, all I heard was no. I took all sorts of odd jobs outside of the business, but I never stopped writing. I never stopped making short films. And I'd written so many scripts that I found one that I had forgotten that I wrote uh, one day. <laughs> and by the time Precious come along, I knew what it was like to feel underestimated and invisible, but still believe in myself, just as Precious had. And having written all of those scripts, my craft uh, had improved greatly. And though those years didn't always feel good, they were giving me something to say. And much like the second act in a script, it's the hero's struggle. It's when the hero's worlds are turned upside down, where they learn about themselves and the world around them. And you knew about hero struggles in literature, certainly before that 10 year period. So did that allow you to be aware that the struggles you were going through might one day pay off? Is that what kept you going? Well, I think what kept me going, what, I looked at my other friends and they had more practical professions. <laughs> and I always thought, well, maybe I can do that. And a split second later, that thought would get kicked out of my, my mind because I, I just felt like this is the only thing I can do. And we can call that a calling or a curse, particularly in a difficult industry. But going back to the first scene of your life, 
fill that in with some detail because uh, based on the little bio I have of you, I mean, when you say everything was going really well, it was really going well. So tell us about, you know, the education, about what your parents did for a living and about the, mm. the education that you were privileged to get. Mm. Indeed, I grew up in a, a loving, stable home, uh, the youngest of three boys, where uh, education and respect for others was very important in our household. My father was a, a technician who helped build submarines, and my mother, for most of her career as an educator, uh, was a school principal. And um, in our household, we were always told that anything you you want to do, you you can do it. And we were exposed to music lessons, sports, art. Early on, my oldest brother got an early computer and uh, he really has this uh, incredible analytic mind and uh, mathematical thinking, but still not entirely linear. I mean, he, he also played piano and football and baseball and track. And my middle brother, Todd, we got a piano when he was five. And now he's a composer. He plays several instruments and speaks several languages. And me, I I like to play a lot. I, I was into Darth Vader, Spider-Man, and John Travolta. So um, were you also, I, I played with... Were you also a serious <laughs> student? Oh, yes, but... I, I never considered myself as smart as, as my brothers, but I I always felt like I should get good grades because I didn't want to let my parents down. And it was this unusual thing because I don't feel like I grew up in a strict household at all, but I just didn't want to disappoint them. But my, you know, my passion was, you know, in, in, in pop art and baseball and I remember getting cameras as gifts at an early age, and I used those endlessly. So, you know, my feeling is, with kids growing up, they should be allowed to explore, explore, and they should be exposed to as many different things as they can, and choose their own path, and hopefully with the support of their family. Uh, but I've found that people who accomplish things with very little support. I have a great deal of admiration for them. And would people would often ask how I could relate to someone like Precious, who grew up in a very, very different environment. And I tell them two reasons, really. One, I admire her, because she has more obstacles and less support than the rest of us. And two, I don't look at her as different. I look at her as wanting the same things we want, having the same feelings we have. She wants to be loved and to give love and to contribute. And so I found I could relate to her uh, quite strongly. And I think that was a lot of the key in really finding a way to, to turn her story into something for the screen, to make it cinematic. It sounds like it was... It almost sounds effortless the way you describe it. Well, I did work 
work quite hard. But I do feel that um, I was very lucky too. You know, with my same skill set, with one or two factors of my environment changed, I would be... I, I, I often wonder if I would be speaking with you right now. Well, we, we don't have to worry about that because one of the factors was changed. There was that 10-year period where everybody said no to you. No, 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 mm. no, no. And the first 20, oh, yeah. 23 years, it sounded like yes, 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 yes. You were a football player on the Harvard football team, right? Indeed, yes. You know, in, yes, foot, I was. in football, they, they talk about uh, keep moving your feet. Did that, is, did that get you through those 10 years? I mean, it sounds like you just, you didn't stop pushing forward that's right i didn't because of that belief inside me and i'd had i had some success before and i did believe in my talents but i also worked hard to keep learning and late in that stretch of over 10 years of, of struggling i began to feel very good about my abilities but I lost a fair amount of hope and opportunity. And if Precious had come along years earlier, I don't think I would have been ready. I, don't, I think I would have had less to say. Uh, the, the lessons that you learn from struggle are incredible, but you wouldn't want to hear that at the time. At the time, I was just thinking, uh, I want my chance, I want my chance, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. But... I'm not. Now, I love the Star Wars trilogy. This may seem like a non sequitur. But I feel, I feel like Luke might have felt when he faced Darth Vader too early in my first encounter with Hollywood. And I thought I was ready. But in that undetermined amount of time between The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, where he's in the swamp, training with Yoda, I felt, I felt a lot like, like that, and that emerged, uh, I would say, more mature, realistic, balanced person. Not that I was ever unhinged, but there was a certain understanding and acceptance of how the world works, and a security in my abilities but i knew there was no guarantee of opportunity people extol the value of failure they said you've got to set yourself mm. up to fail because you learn so much from failure but you're 10 years in a row of failure and yet of course it wasn't completely failure and you knew it you were developing skills but still the the constant nose uh mm. i mean did you said you started to lose hope i mean did it ever sink you into depression or it never quite got that bad Hmm. Well, uh, I will tell you, it it is tough to keep going that long with almost no positive reinforcement, even outside of the industry. If you have a, con a casual conversation with someone and you're talking about this dream of yours, you know, I, I think it's quite easy for people to laugh at you. And that happened, too. And I just stopped talking about it. What, what, For who, the who, most part. Who, laugh, who laughed at you? <laughs> well, one day, 
I went out in the middle of this struggle here. I, I went out on this lunch date with this young woman. And I shouldn't have gone for two reasons. One, I didn't have any money. Two, she was mean. <laughs> and I was talking about what I want to do with my life in filmmaking. And she stared at me quite coldly and said, Oh, really? What do you want, an Oscar? Huh. And I was shocked. And I later realized that if anybody does something like that to you, it is their baggage, their issues, not yours. But those sorts of things happening along the way didn't help. It's almost like surround sound rejection. So uh, I kept going, though. Surround and sound, surround sound rejection. I love that. I don't know if that's a title to a to a, a more a more straight comedy because I you have a straight comedy in you, correct? I mean, I know you have a comedy in you. I, even watching, if you can make me laugh, and I, you know, there there were funny moments in this violent, tender, new movie of yours, Violent Daisy. But you mm. you clearly like humor and uh, no money and mean. There, there's another. I mean, that's got to be the st the opening scene of something. <laughs> Hopefully not the closing well, scene. You can't. Uh, ha yes. right? You can't do that, right? You can't do that to an audience to have no <laughs> no money and mean be the closing scene unless it's a trilogy. <laughs> exactly. I agree with you completely. And. Uh, I guess the only thing I was thinking of at the time is how many things I could have done with that $17. You remember the, the amount of money you spent on her. Oh, yeah. And you know, and that's a good thing about not having a lot of money. You know your net worth to the nickel at all times. And the thing about it is, when you said set yourself up to fail, um, what I did was tr see if I could survive without help because my family was able to help and they were willing to help. And I always had this dream, like, oh, well, you know, I can get things done on my own. But the joke is, uh, whatever I had gotten done up to that point was largely a factor of their love and support. But like the heroes in these stories we tell, the hero does have to face his or her greatest challenges alone. The loss of your father at age 19 in such a tightly knit family, I mean, and the fact that you kept on going on and staying focused on your work, I mean, that really is, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's a hard thing. In fact, one of our, one of our previous CNN Profiles guests, Clive Davis, talks about losing both his parents within a year at around the age of 18 and you know, basically having no money, but fortunately getting a scholarship uh, to, I believe, NYU and ultimately became one of, one of the great uh, record producers. But that loss of a father who, who you clearly admired so much, uh, you know, how, how did that shape, shape your life? And, 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 and by the way, what lessons did, did you learn about being a good parent from him? Mm. Not that you, you're not a parent now, correct? Right. Uh, correct. But, but, what did he teach you? Well, about the importance of um, spending time with children, 
the importance of intellectual curiosity, intellectual pursuits, uh, kindness, firmness. How did he balance kind and firm with you? This is well, this this is a question for all for me and all my fellow parents who are listening, because <laughs> that that's always a tough balance, kind and firm. Well, I I think that um, if I did something really foolish, and I'm trying to think what foolish things I did, it was very rare. But once in a blue moon, uh, I would get hit, very rarely, and I think that that was. Kids these days don't get hit enough. But, um, <laughs> I, I, uh, when I think back on my childhood and him, I have to really think hard to recall those moments. And uh, the one I remember the most was sitting beside him and him teaching me about f-stops on a camera. So I'm sorry to raise it if it's uh, if it's too painful. No, well, I am. Um, you know, I think about when you said when you talked about Clive Davis, and I think about what he's accomplished. And I'm familiar with his story, and how he did so much on his own. See, when I look at that, I I just don't know how it's possible. And uh, I listened to your piece with Clive Davis. I thought it was remarkable. Um, when I knew that I was going to have the opportunity to speak with you. That's what I listened to. And so um, people often ask me, I mean, uh, in inter uh, I was interviewed and asked, well, do you have issues with your father? If you look at Precious and you look at uh, Violet and Daisy, one might assume that. And it was quite the opposite. So I don't know. I think some of it comes from an utter fascination and admiration for anyone who thrives in spite of that situation. Wow. And I, and I wouldn't have, and I didn't assume actually for myself that you had issues with your father watching this movie. In fact, you know, listening to your words, uh, how you describe this movie as one moving, these girls moving towards their humanity, I almost felt like you... You had to experience that humanity, and 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 you're you're shouting it out to the world in, in your quiet mm. way, uh, mm. be, because honest, honestly, after having watched, and this is why I say I, I don't mean to, the timing of this coming out near Father's Day, um, and again, it's it's mm. an aspect of the movie. It's not this is not going to hit you over the head, but but it it's just a reminder for me how important it is to communicate and you know. The f-stop story that choked you up, that memory is, you know, when you think about the small moments uh, and how much they resonate and how much we often, you know, as parents and people get obsessed with the big moments, you know, are we directing our children correctly? Are we saying the right things? You know, are we instilling the right values? And the one story that comes to your mind is of the two of you side by side not explicitly teaching the child here's how to be in life right just sharing a moment mm. yes and what was unspoken in that moment was 
here's something else you can learn to help you in your life. Wow. Well, I almost can't go on after this, but I, I do want to ask you, you know, going forward. So I hope this movie is, is a great, great success. And moving forward, as you continue to write your own screenplay, what are you envisioning? And despite all the benefits of those 10 years of no's, I would have to think mm. that you feel like you've had enough no's in your life, and yet a couple more would probably make you see other things that you could never imagine seeing. So what are you looking for these next, these coming years? How old are you now? I'm 42. 42. So you've, we hope, have a many, many more years of movie making ahead of you. But in life, mm. what are you looking for? To continue learning. Uh, that... I think that would make me very happy and to continue to have the privilege to express myself through art, but do so in a way that hopefully inspires others. When you tell me that Violet and Daisy makes you think about your own children, uh, to me it's very moving very gratifying because I think art at its best inspires and no matter how much uh, something uh, may seem far out meaning Violet and Daisy is really in the context of a fable the important thing is that it's grounded squarely in our reality and it's why a person can be moved by an animated film more than a live-action film, or why they can be moved more by a film about penguins, or an ancient myth, or a space saga. It's the humanity that's underneath, and the inspiration. Well... I can't go on from there because uh, all I can tell our audience is to uh, really take the time to uh, to go see Violet and Daisy. And uh, uh, you've just spoken to us, and I, I think I think your characters, as as far removed from their realities and our realities as they may seem, will will speak to a lot of people as they spoke to me. Uh, so Jeffrey Fletcher. Screenwriter, director, thank you so much for joining us here on CNN Profiles. Oh, Michael, it was a pleasure. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it, and thank you for the kind words about the film. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.